Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We often ask ourselves, what kind of country do we want to live in? Today, we look at that question in a very different context, dairy farming. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are going to talk about the news and our chaos president. Beth has an amazing interview with a local dairy farmer, and we'll wrap up the show as always with sharing what's on our mind outside of politics. But first, we wanted to take a minute for our membership drive and tell you what your support on Patreon.com means to us. A big part of your Patreon support helps us pay for the actual cost of the show. There are hosting fees. We've got equipment and travel costs. We've added a producer so that we can improve the consistency of our audio quality. 
And we have a production assistant that we hope to start compensating as well. It's also just to give us the ability to make Pantsy Politics our livelihood. I quit my job at the end of the year, which was a very big deal for me. But that is how I'm able to do the research that we need. We've added the nightly nuance feature on Patreon. So every single day we're producing some short audio segments. We really believe in what we're doing here as a mission more than anything else. So we're not trying to get rich from from Patreon support, we are trying to come somewhere in a in the range where we can support our families and do the show full time because the size of the audience now really demands that we pay attention to social media and to the news and to our research on a full-time basis. So that's what your support does for us. We are very, very appreciative. We hope that we have some cool rewards for you. We've got some very cool swag in the process for Patreon supporters, both new and old. And, and like I said, at the $25 a month level on Mondays through Thursdays, you can get a seven to 10 minute podcast every single day from us highlighting a particular news story. So we hope that you'll consider going over to patreon.com. We are both very uncomfortable asking for money. Well, that's not really true. I'm very I'm not uncomfortable. Sarah's not at all. I'm very uncomfortable <laughs> asking for money. But I want you to understand that we're trying to put out a product that is worth you paying for. And even though that doesn't come across in the podcast feed, we have sponsors. They're wonderful sponsors. It just doesn't get us to where we need to be. And so we are very, very grateful for your support and for you being part of the community around Pantsy Politics in this way. Yes, I'm not uncomfortable asking for your support because I think that everyone understands how much time and energy and resources we pour into this podcast. Since I've been on the internet sort of quote unquote working since 2011, I've seen such a shift where people just expected everything to be free to where now people say, no, I understand that this is work and I take in this content and it improves my life and I'm ready to pay for it. I've seen that shift in myself. I support lots of podcasts and websites that I read and visit and use as resources. And so um, I don't feel bad asking for that sort of support because I think everybody is seeing um, the value and I hope that we bring lots of value um, to our individual lives through this content and um, financial support is one way to not only continue that content but improve it. We really, really, really appreciate um, all the support we've received this far. Like Beth said, we have big plans for the end of the membership, membership drive. Anyone who has upgraded their support or become a new member will be receiving some very special swag that we are working on right now and we're going to reveal the swag soon. So get excited and become a Patreon supporter now. There is lots to talk about in terms of news before we get to our dairy farming conversation, which we've been promising for such a long time and we're finally delivering on today. Sarah, you have been calling Donald Trump a chaos candidate along with Jeb Bush for a very long time. And this week, you kind of synthesized all of the news stories, especially swirling around Rudy Giuliani and the president as the chaos presidency. As I was reading the news this morning and over the weekend, there were so many stories. Giuliani on all these morning shows, um, contradicting the president, the president saying he doesn't quite have the facts straight yet, which I think means he doesn't understand the story we're perpetuating. And I was reading multiple stories about the foreign secretary from Britain coming, trying to persuade uh, Mike Pence and hopefully Donald Trump to stay in the Iran nuclear deal. I was reading stories that North Korea was saying uh, Donald Trump is ruining the mood with his um, insistence on talking about how North Korea is weak and U.S. is strong, and that's why we're coming to this summit. Then there was all this reporting on Gina Haspel, the nominee to head the CIA, wanting to withdraw over the weekend and how they rushed to – CIA headquarters to convince her to stay as the nominee. And I thought, particularly the Gina Haspel story, like 
the pressure that puts on everybody on the ground to clean up these messes. Now this woman has to, I don't even like Gina Haspel. I mean, not as a person, I don't know as a person, but I don't think she's a great nominee. And now she has to go basically say, well, why didn't you withdraw if you thought you were going to be too hard on the um, institution? And the, the the real answer is the Trump administration has been such chaos from the beginning that they can't afford another nominee. They just had Ronnie Jackson drop off as head of the VA. That's a huge post they still have to fill. They just don't have any, they have, you know, scandal ridden heads of the EPA and of HUD that they basically can't find someone to do the good job because it's such a terrible process. They're overloaded on trying to get people through the process. I mean, but she can't stand up and say, well, I couldn't resign because they couldn't find someone else to nominate or go through another nomination process because this chaos approach to staffing the cabinet secretaries is a giant mess. Then it's this pressure on Republican senators, who I don't spend a lot of time feeling sorry for otherwise, to defend this nominee who wanted to quit. Same with the the nuclear deals. Like you have us trying to pull out of a deal that the rest of the world thinks is dependable and important and smart for the future of the planet while trying to form a, a new nuclear deal that seems to be moving forward despite the fact that if I was North Korea, I'd say, you can't stick to this one with Iran. Why should I join one with you? And all these people working dedicating their livelihoods to getting these through. And we just have to, you know, spin in this cyclone of chaos with him. I just, it's so, you just can see the chickens coming home to roost on so many levels. I have a lot of unanswered questions about Gina Haspel. I'm frustrated by the coverage of her nomination because I think it is a very big deal to have a woman nominated to head mm-hmm. the CIA. I don't think that anyone who has been in the CIA for decades is going to have a an uncheckered past. And and by and I even struggle with using that word because uncheckered sounds like something nefarious is in there. I think anyone who has spent decades in the CIA is going to have done and been part of things that make me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I am adamantly opposed to the use of torture. I also understand that a CIA officer during the Bush years probably did and was part of things that are going to make me very uncomfortable. And the more I learn about the Bush years, the more regret I feel about the fact that as a country, we were so terrified that we didn't stand up and more loudly say, this is not acceptable. We are not this afraid. We will not compromise others, humanities, and our own to deal with our fear. And I think we can have that conversation as a country without looking at individuals involved with um, a sense that they are irredeemable. So I'm kind of concerned that Gina Haspel, like many women who have been um, in government for decades and then are promoted to higher office, is a foil for us to play out what should be a national conversation about what our country has done. It's just so frustrating because... This is why you can't behave like this as president. They're all bad enough as single news stories. But when you look over the sort of breadth and depth and impact of this approach, you see that nothing is functioning as it should. And if you take one, two, God forbid, four years of the government and every department be it the Secretary of State, where there was just no staffing, no work being done. Over, you know, 
years of of losing talented people, of there being no real leadership, of the reputations of the institution suffering. This is decades of impact. This is setting us back decades. And while I understand sort of the horse race, man- horse race mentality of like, well, what's the impact of polling? His base doesn't seem to care. And I get that. And it is frustrating that no matter how much he lies or no how, no matter how much he screws up or commits immoral acts, like no, his base doesn't seem to care. But like the rest of us should because the, the way he is functioning and the way he is trying to, you know, run the White House is basically just a public relations shop and nothing else is having an impact. And you're seeing it on global levels. You're seeing it on the micro level of just his legal representation and what a hot mess it is. And it's so frustrating and disheartening to realize that this goes way beyond individual news stories and the overall impact of this chaos is going to be seen for years and years to come. I'm not sure what the impact is going to be long-term because bad leadership can be remedied pretty quickly by good leadership in a lot of circumstances. And I don't want to take anything away from the people in the State Department, for example, who have been quietly doing their work. There has been dysfunction, for sure. But there are also lots of people in the government who are still doing their best every day and showing up and doing that work. And maybe we don't see it all the time. But I don't believe we are so disintegrated yet that we can't bounce back from it. I think what really is clear from the legal team stories about the Trump administration is that Donald Trump just has no leadership skills whatsoever. If you can't manage your relationships with your attorneys, you just you just don't have it, right? You can't do this. And it it calls out for someone in the administration to step up and and demonstrate those qualities. It also calls out for Congress to do a better job. I'm encouraged that Bob Corker and Tim Kaine are working together on authorization of military force legislation. I might not agree with what they've come up with. There are questions that I have about it for sure, but I'm encouraged that they're doing that work. And I hope that we continue to see more people as the train wreck goes on, as we have Stormy Daniels in the cold open of Saturday Night Live. I hope that we all can take a breath and say, let's not see the logical extension of this. And let's step up and do more work together and try to hold things together in the meantime. And then let's get to the midterms and get to 2020 and make some better choices. I don't think that he um, sees his relationship with his legal team as a relationship. That's the problem, right? He doesn't think it's a relationship. He thinks it's, I do what I want. You clean up the mess, but that's not good. That's not going to serve you. I don't know how many repercussions of this you'll have to suffer to see that it won't serve you well, but I do disagree. And it's not necessarily that I think we're disintegrated past the point of return, but there will be cost. I'm a prisoner of hope. I do believe with a change of leadership, people can be inspired to public service. 
But the people who have left public service, and there have been lots, and there have been more than in past changeovers of administration, you have career public servants or public servants at the beginning of their career leaving and going into the private sector. So even if in a change of leadership they are inspired to return, they are missing experiences. They are missing decades of experiences that build their skills in public service. And not that they can't build some of those school, those skills in the private sector, but it's just not the same. They're missing experiences, especially in the State Department. But I would argue you just as much in the Veterans Administration. All these secretary, like all these cabinets are important and those career public servants build skills over time under good leadership, under any leadership and to not be there and to not be building that team, to not be building that experience, we will suffer a cost of that. And no, I don't think it's a disintegration point to the point of no return, but there will be cost of the lack of leadership over these years under the Trump administration um, with regards to career public servants in every cabinet. It's a hard balance because we don't do a good job as the American people of knowing what the right balance of experience and fresh thinking is. This is the issue with Gina Haspel, right? Because Gina Haspel is qualified for this position. She's arguably one of the most qualified appointments President Trump has made, if not the most qualified. But then we struggle with what her experience is. And that's always going to be true. When you're talking about all of these people who've left public service, there's a good portion of the American population that would say, good, like it hasn't been working. It's broken. We need new people in to fix it. I think there's a balance. And I am troubled by all of the people who have left public service under President Trump. I'm troubled by members of Congress not seeking reelection because of President Trump and particularly the the members who are not versus the people who are energized in this climate. I don't think any of what's happening is good. And and I don't want to be misunderstood. I agree with you that there is a cost to this chaos. I just want to maintain, one, a level of respect for people who are doing their best to hold it together. I do not believe that every person in government should resign right now, Mm -hmm. which is the sentiment from corners of the universe, right? And I also... I, I want to maintain that optimism that, like Mark McKinnon said, we're having a national civics lesson and there are going to be more people who are inspired to go into public service and make a difference. And hopefully we can emerge from this over some period of time in a stronger position. Well, as we have conversations about what we want our government to look like, there are conversations across the globe. There were protests in Russia. Thousands were arrested um, in the wake of the election of President Putin. I use the word election very loosely. There were also democratic elections in Lebanon and the first democratic election in Tunisia since the Arab Spring. Tunisia is a country very close to my heart. My husband and I spent a week there um, in 2008. It is a wonderful country and I am encouraged to see the changes there. They have Um, a shift to a lot of local control with city and county commissions. They also have a huge increase in the female representation of people running for office. So they still had really low turnout. Um, There's a lot of apathy. There's high unemployment in Tunisia, but it was really the birthplace of the Arab Spring. And um, I'm hoping that the country continues this conversation about democratic election and what they want their democracy to look like. On the foreign policy front, I want to let you know that this week I'll be sharing a primer about Iran. I keep 
struggling with where to start because Iran has such a long history. And even the history of the United States with Iran is long and complicated. So I keep thinking, well, I'll start at World War II. Nope, I need to go back to 1900. (laughs) You know, I just kind of keep pushing backward because the context is really important to understanding the president's analysis around the Iran nuclear agreement. And I am becoming more and more interested in what the rest of the world sees as America. I think we get Mm -hmm. very myopic about our own history. And I think what we do with Iran is so relevant to what we do going into talks with North Korea and, and other actions across the world, the militarization of the South China Sea, which is something I've talked about on Patreon. So I am excited about this research that I've been doing about Iran and looking forward to sharing it with you as we continue the conversation about whether America stays uh, part of the JCPOA. We always take a second to compliment people not of our political party before moving into our main segment. Sarah, who's on your mind this week? John McCain is on my mind. Um, it does seem that he has, he and his um, family and staff are making arrangements. I, he's being treated for um, brain cancer, but I think that he's looking at sort of the end of treatment and the end of life and making decisions about how he wants to be remembered, which I think bravo for him. I think that he should be in as much control of his legacy as he is capable of being. Uh, of course, what the news focused on was the fact that he is inviting, he wants Mike Pence at his funeral, but not Donald Trump, which I think is fair because Donald Trump has not treated John McCain um, with a lot of respect, arguably any respect. Um, and so I think that kudos to him for taking control of that while he can. It's also kind of a beautiful thing to have John McCain and Barbara Bush as these examples of dying with dignity and grace and kind of approaching death fearlessly and on your own terms. We don't have a lot of examples of that. So that's a sacrifice and a gift from both of those families, I think. Mm-hmm. I wanted to compliment Senator Jill Tokuda in Hawaii. She came up in my research for a talk I just gave on paid family leave. Hawaii is studying paid family leave. And part of what attracted me to Senator Tokuda were her, were her comments You know, it could be in a conversation about paid family leave that you kind of go to war over it, right? And people who are worried about the fiscal responsibility side of it make fun of the people who are worried about the family care side of it and and vice versa, and that it becomes this pitched battle. At least from the coverage that I've seen, and it's hard to comment on something that's happening in Hawaii when you're not there, because I think there is such a distinct culture and state legislatures all have such a distinct culture anyway. From what I've seen, the conversation seems very respectful of both sets of concerns. And like the entire state is looking for a way for Hawaii to express its values around families while being fiscally responsible. And Senator Tokuda's remarks impressed me in that regard. She's running for lieutenant governor. It's been in the news quite a bit because of that. Hawaii has also passed, in part because of her efforts, a corollary to Title IX in the state to protect against sex discrimination. It's a very big step forward, particularly for the LGBT community and for educational institutions. So she's doing good work down there in Hawaii, and I was excited to learn more about her. Up next, we are going to share what is one of my favorite conversations I've had since we started the podcast, 
because it is so close to my heart. As many of you know, I grew up on a dairy farm, and I spoke with Carolyn Coombs, who blogs at amodernmilkmaid.com. She and her family run a farm in Kentucky and are very good representatives of a crisis going on here about the price of milk and about whether small family farms can continue to exist. Now, if you're thinking, I don't care about dairy farms, I still want to ask you to listen to this conversation because where it goes, I think, is a real discussion about American consumerism and capitalism and what we really value as a country. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pansy. with one of our listeners, Carolyn, I reached out to her after seeing some of her social media posts about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. As longtime Pantsy Politics listeners know, I grew up on a dairy farm and Carolyn is a dairy farmer. And so I wanted to talk with her because of some things happening in the state of Kentucky and we'll get into the specifics of all of that. But Carolyn, first, hi, and thank you for being here. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. Can you tell everybody a little bit about your farm and what you do? So, yeah. So I actually grew up on a dairy and tobacco farm in far western Kentucky and then married my husband um, when we met in college. um, And he is a lifelong dairy farmer. So this farm that I currently live on is my husband's family farm. It's been in the family since 1962. And um, he is the third generation to take over the farm. Currently... There are three partners. There is um, him, his father, and his uncle. And then um, I help out with calves, and his mom helps out with books. But uh, me and and his mom have separate city jobs is what we call them. Um, I love that. (laughs) So we have – we – it's almost like we pay the bills and they farm for fun. But no, we – we have a whole lot of fun with it and I have two little boys and so they love, 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 um, their cows. So yeah, it's definitely a family affair over here. How many cows do y'all milk? We milk, um, this morning, I think we were milking 75. Um, we have 85 milk cows that are either in the dry period or in the milking herd. And then overall we have 250 animals on the place. So that includes our replacement heifers, our calves, and then we have a small 18 uh, mama cow beef operation that we have kind of on the side. Okay. So let's tell people who don't know how dairy farming works for a farm of this size. Yeah. So it's hard. (laughs) It, It works and it's hard. So what we do is we don't have any employees besides ourselves. Now that is kind of rare. Um, a lot of people have a full-time em- employer, but for people who are very basic, uh, for a very basic understanding of dairy farming, um, my husband gets up at 3 a.m. every morning and he goes and he gets the cows in. Um, so this morning it's about 75 of them. And then we milk them. And then after they get milked, they'll go out onto um, a lot where they each have their own stall to sleep in and they'll be fed. And then throughout the day, they'll just kind of hang out until 3 p.m. when he comes back and we'll do the second milking for the day and we'll be done at 6.30 again where they'll stay in. And then at night, we let them go out to pasture so that they can kind of hang out. Um, but we try not to keep them out there too much because if they calve, sometimes they can calve in water. And we, we want to make sure that they're as safe as possible when we have them. So... Um, A lot of people don't know. These are just like little tidbits, but like a lot of people don't know that in order for a cow to give milk, she has to have a baby. So we're constantly managing um, who's pregnant, who has already had a baby, 
how long do we give um, one of our cows a break um, before before um, she gets pregnant again? Um, and then we also other things that we do to care for our cows. Uh, they get pedicures uh, at least twice a year, and we uh, we check them almost daily when it comes to uh, their health. So if they're not giving a lot of milk, or or if we can tell that their ears are droopy, they get you know temperature checked uh, and all different kinds of things that my husband knows to look for when they're not feeling their best. Yeah, my dad knew every cow, right? He could recognize a cow by any part of its body, really. He had this real affection for all of the cows. I think it's important for people to understand that there's a real relationship uh, involved in milking cows. And also that that daily, twice a day, early in the morning, in the early evening, late afternoon is not optional. One of the things that people growing up with me could not understand is that on Christmas morning, I had to wait until late in the morning to open gifts because my dad was out milking cows because the, the cows doesn't the cows don't care that it's Christmas. No, no, no. So, yeah, so we have that rule as as well that um, any holiday um, has to wait until dad gets home. I mean, and I have I have a a three-year-old and a one-year-old and my three-year-old's just now understanding the concept of Christmas, but those cows can't wait. I mean, they could get sick. They could, um, that's one of the reasons why, um, and we'll get into this about this dairy crisis is so hard is that I can't, I can't just tell my cows to hold on, give, give me like a month, give me like a month and then we'll, and then we'll just, we'll, we'll start again. Like I can't do that. So you have to milk the cows. It's painful for them if you don't. Uh, It's important to their health and the farm in general to stay on a really consistent schedule. Let's also talk about how this business is heavily regulated. There are so many requirements about every aspect of cleanliness, things that are good, things that you would want, and also some things that make you roll your eyes and you think somebody who's never been on a farm ever wrote this and we'll figure out how to deal with it. Can you talk, Carolyn, about what happens? So you milk the cows and the milk is stored in giant coolers, right? And then what happens? Okay, so after the cows get milked, uh, they uh, there's a few things. One, um, it all gets transported into a big bulk tank, which it is then cooled down to less than 45 degrees. And we have coolers on site that do all of that. Then our pickup time, um, a hauler will come and he will pick up our milk every other day. His is a refrigerated um a refrigerated tanker truck, he will come and he will take a sample of that milk first. He will take the temperature of that milk second. And then if it passes those two tests and what the test is for is if there's um, any antibiotics that got through, um, anything that could have messed up the bacteria count, anything like that, um, it then gets rejected. And if it's rejected, it doesn't go into the big tanker truck. After it is put onto the tanker truck, he goes to other farms and checks out and, you know, and and does the same procedure. We have five farms on our route. And then um, all of our milk, um, as of today, goes to Dean's Foods in Louisville. Then 
When he gets to the plant, the plant does their own testing to test the entire tanker truck. If it does not pass another test, then the entire tanker truck will be dumped. And we will not get paid for that tanker load of milk. Um, and whenever I was talking about it earlier about potentially antibiotics getting through, we only give antibiotics to our animals when they are sick, when they have mastitis, which our um, mom viewers will appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, they, they could die from that. It is a bacterial infection inside the body. We do not want to kill our cows. We do not want them to be hurt or sick. So we give them antibiotics only when they are sick and hurt. Um, so, but we also have a withdrawal period. So let's say a cow has mastitis and I give her some antibiotics for that. Well, for the next three days, I have to dump her milk. I cannot put it in the tank whatsoever because we don't want, even if there is some sort of antibiotic residue, we do not want that going into the food chain. We will um, give that to uh, some of our calves or we'll just dump it. Um, we've, and most of the time we just dump it because we give our calves some powdered milk. Um, so make sure that they're healthy and we make sure that that doesn't go into the food chain. I always tell people, I think that if you are concerned about food production in the United States, if you visit a small dairy farm, you would feel pretty good about where your milk comes from. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's true with a lot of larger operations. And part of the reason that it is so hard, you know, Carolyn, you talked about uh, you go make money to help support this whole situation is because it's really hard to make money ethically farming on a small dairy farm. It's super hard work and you don't get rich doing it. So against that backdrop, can you tell everybody about what's going on in Kentucky? Yeah. So um, there's a few things. And so we'll probably have, just, have to go step by step. So um, since 2015, we have had a drop in milk prices. 2015 was a really good year for us. And prices have slowly declined since then. And what I mean by good prices are we were getting – 25 to $26 per hundred pounds of our milk. And in, if you want to kind of put that into perspective, in order to break even on our farm, we have to be making 16 to $17 per hundred pounds of milk in order to break even. So we were making money in 2015. Since that time, it has slowly declined. And we have been suffering. Um, last month, our check was $15.50 per 100 pounds of milk. So we were paying for somebody to take our milk. So we were not making any money. Mm -hmm. So we've been going through that, and we've been adapting. We have a fabulous support system with um, my mother-in-law and uh, father-in-law. So we were working through that, and we were – we were very positive that we were we saw the light at the end of the tunnel. March 2nd, we received a letter from Dean's Food Company saying that due to 
um, losing their contract with Walmart because they bottled milk for Walmart for all the great value that came from Dean's Foods. Due to them losing that contract on June 1st of 2018, they had to let us go. So us and 19 other producers in the state of Kentucky, but a hundred producers altogether. So from Indiana, I think there was Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina. So several, um, we lost our contract. That was obviously devastating, but we had high hopes that we would be able to get in somewhere else that, okay, they lost their contracts, but the month, the milk has to be coming from somewhere to supply Walmart. So we should be able to get in somewhere. We had assurances from several people that, uh, dairy farmers of America, which was a co-op, it's a co-op. So there's two different types of systems. You can have a co-op system where everybody pulls their milk together and then it is marketed from there. Or you can be a direct supplier to a processor, which is what we were. So the processor cut us. Um, so we thought if we got into a co-op situation, the milk could flow to any of the processors that they supply. We were, we were given high hopes um, of joining Dairy Farmers of America. And we were told it was a 95% guarantee that we would be taken by Dairy Farmers of America. Uh, last, when, last Wednesday, I think it was, um, I called my husband to ask him if he had heard because they the uh, it's separated into councils. So various um, areas around the country have different councils for Dairy Farmers of America that govern their area. And they were putting it up for a vote to take X amount of farmers, would they, um, to take us on. And we, my, I called my husband and he said he had just gotten off the phone with the regional rep and the council had voted not to take any dairy farmers. So none of the ones who applied were accepted. Um, and that was two months, that was last Wednesday. So that's been two months into the entire process when we could have been working on other things, but we were assured that we were going to be okay with this. And so now we're at square one, um, which also includes, we don't have much time left. Um, I've been sharing on my Facebook page that um, starting today, a um, countdown of today's day 29. Tomorrow will be day 28. Um, right now, we're looking at how do we sell our cows? Because um, the market, since dairy's down, the market is not good to sell dairy cows. I mean, a typical dairy cow should be going for twelve dollars to $1,500. And we had somebody send one to sell last week, and it came in, and he only got $600 for it. Wow. So people are losing their livelihoods. Um, they're not being able, they're not able to pay off their debt. Um, it's just, it's, we're between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, you ask somebody to, to do something or to help and everybody's like, well, well, what can we do to help? And I, you know, and it's hard because it's definitely supply demand, but it's also federal versus state. 
you know, there's, there's, uh, we're a part of a federal milk marketing order, which is a really long term for somebody who sets our price and they use a very interesting equation to get that. Um, and so it's almost devastating how people just look at you and they're like, well, we can't do anything. Can you say more about that, Carolyn? Can you talk more about how the prices are set and and sort of what what is causing all of this? What is at the root of of this problem? Yeah, so um, we are governed by a federal milk marketing order. There are 10 in the nation, but not every dairy farmer uh, answers to a federal milk marketing order. Um, also, um, so the way that the... It's, it's very convoluted. So the way that the milk price is actually set is an economist can't even figure it out. Um, they take into account the price of commodities and then the price of butter and then like the, the protein part of it. So like the butter and the cream and they take into account those prices and then it transforms into a blended price. So what we get what we get milk for is we sell milk. It's amazing. We sell milk by the pound, but you buy it by the gallon. Mm-hmm. So we sell it that way because we sell it. We get paid off of these solids that are in the milk. We don't get paid by the water that's in it because milk is 95% water. I think that's like the right number, but it's, it's majority of it is water. And then the proteins and the fats, um, that is what we actually get paid on. Um, and so I was talking to my professor the other day from school who is a dairy economist. And I said, well, how do you come, like, what's that equation that they use? And he was like, oh, oh, you don't even know. Like, he was like, I don't even know. He was like, I know that they take into account supply and demand, which right now there is a global oversupply of dairy. And I mean, Australia was hurting, um, Europe was hurting, and we've been hurting. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's an oversupply, but they're, they're getting rid of so many dairies right now. It's, it's twofold. One, they're getting rid of so many dairies. So you're kind of like, well, now we're now there's going to be an over demand and there's not even going to be enough supply to do it. Well, then that allows the larger dairies to expand even more. And then the smaller, I mean, the smaller dairies, we, we have to get out when it's, when it's this bad, we don't have enough to, um, to kind of like spread over the entire farm. We don't have a large enough farm to, to spread out all of the, um, to take that hit, I guess you would say. So I've been having a lot of issues because I am a conventional agriculturalist. I think there's a place in the market for everybody. I think that there is a place for the 2000 cow dairy, um, or the 10,000 cow dairy, but I also believe that there's a place for us now that I'm being hit. It's really testing that, you know, that, that thought process, like it's testing everything that I thought that I believed in because right now we have several people from Michigan wanting our cows. They're like, yeah, we'll come. And I said, but, but if it is an oversupply problem, shouldn't my cows be going 
to the stockyards? Like, shouldn't they be taken out of the entire like supply chain? Because that there's, they are what is causing the oversupply. And if I'm just moving them from this farm to a farm up in Michigan, that's not doing anything for the oversupply problem. Right. And the, and the, Way to talk about this to help people understand, I think, is to remind everybody of where we started. Because collecting milk from Carolyn's farm, where there are 75 to 80 cows, and then driving 10, 15, 20, 30, 45, 100 miles with your truck on this in this time-sensitive window, right, to pick mm-hmm. up milk, to keep it cold from these small farms that are scattered throughout the state of Kentucky, especially in the western part of the state where I grew up, mm-hmm. is an expensive process. Yeah. And it is being supplanted by the efficiency, right, mm-hmm. of these 10,000 cow mega farms mm-hmm. where you're getting all your milk from one place and you're cutting a lot of those costs involved in in the pickup and transport of milk in the sort of one issue in the milk spoils the whole thing and they're coming from multiple farms. So you've got to figure that out. And that's why some of this is happening. Is that a fair characterization, Carolyn? Yeah. So I, when this first happened, everybody wanted to boycott, everybody wanted to boycott Dean's. They wanted to boycott Walmart. And I couldn't in good faith effort do that because I know that they're running a business like I absolutely know why Dean's cut cut us. Like they didn't I mean they would they would go under if they kept us. Like I get that. And the fact is is why would Walmart want to deal with 100 cow dairies versus 10 2000 right. cow dairies? Like it makes sense that they only do business with 10 farms versus 200. Like I get it. You don't like no one has to sell me on that. However, at what at what point are we sacrificing the heritage, the culture, and the small business owner? Because that's what we are. The the at what point are we sacrificing rural America for efficiency? Right. And where is that tipping point? And also the care of the animals changes in larger operations. I mean, there are a lot of things about the process that differ from where you are to that 2,000 to 10,000 cow operation. Right. And the other thing that I want to ask you, Carolyn, so that people who aren't in this industry and have no understanding of kind of how all this works might be wondering is, why can't you sell your milk to your neighbors? Why can't you go just totally local, milk your cows and say, come get your milk, everybody. Yeah. So I would love to do that. Um, in fact, that's kind of like one of those, I've been telling everybody that I refuse to give up on this lifestyle and that's kind of, they might've won the battle, but they haven't won the war because <laughs> you know, I refuse, but there's a few things. So one, we cannot sell raw milk in the state of Kentucky. It is illegal. Um, and for me personally, it's for good reason. Selling raw milk um, is good in 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 concept. Um, however, there are bacteria on our farm that I am used to, I am exposed to, my kids are exposed to, my husband is exposed to. That if my kids drank the raw milk, 
it probably wouldn't impact them. But I cannot in good faith effort being a mom give somebody else raw milk that could then make their kids sick. We live on a farm. There is manure everywhere. That is that is part of it. There's dirt. There's germs. There's stuff everywhere because that's part of it. And I cannot, I can only guarantee so much. We clean off their udders every time they come in, but we cannot guarantee that some type of bacteria might not get into it because that's, that's raw. You don't pasteurize it. You don't try to kill the germs or anything. It's just straight from the cow. And so that's one of the main reasons why we, why Kentucky has made it illegal to produce or to sell raw milk. The other thing is, is that if somebody was to sell raw milk, that didn't do as good of a job as I did on my farm mm-hmm. uh, and it had bacteria in it. Well, then there's this big PR effort saying, Oh my goodness, raw milk is dangerous and don't feed it to your kids. That impacts the whole dairy industry and all moms buying milk, not just the raw milk sellers, but also people buying milk at their local grocery store. It impacts the whole industry. I mean, I don't know how many people have thrown out their lettuce this past week. And you don't even know if your lettuce is impacted. But but just to be safe, just to be safe, I'm going to throw it all out. And so it impacted the whole lettuce industry, even if it didn't have anything to do with the pack of lettuce that's in your fridge. The second thing is, is that I would love to sell pasteurized milk to my neighbors but it takes an, it takes an investment. Um, that investment is, is pretty hefty for processing equipment. We've talked about it. We're really interested in it, but it takes a whole nother building. It takes a whole host of processing equipment. And then it takes a whole host of inspections because milk is highly regulated. And so we have to make sure that we then are inspected multiple times. Um, we're, we're inspected once a month. Um, when it comes to, uh, the dairy, just the dairy, but if we were to put in a processing plant, it would be even more often that they come and they make sure that everything is good. Everything is clean. It looks good to go to the public. Um, and then it's really hard for me to sell milk to my neighbor when they can get milk at Kroger for 78 cents because Kroger is taking a loss. They're wanting to get moms into the grocery stores. So it might have cost them $2.49 a gallon to bring it into the store. Well, they're just going to cut it down to $0.78 cents because they know that you're going to come in there and you're going to buy other groceries. But that's kind of how they lure you in. It's what we call a loss leader in the dairy industry. And it's, it's what brings people into the grocery store. So we can't compete with that. Like if I'm selling to my neighbor, I cannot sell my milk for 78 cents a gallon. I can't take that kind of loss. Do you know what you would have to sell it for to, to just break even? Do you know what it would cost you um, and it would, what you would have to sell it for? Yeah. If we did like the processing plant and everything, it would probably have to cost between three and a half and four dollars a gallon. Yeah. And I think that's so important because to me, the power of this conversation is both in understanding your individual story and the story of so many people like you and in prompting a larger discussion in the United States, not just about milk, 
but about food and a lot of other goods, what do we want, everybody? What are our community values? And are we willing to spend $4 a gallon on milk to allow our neighbors to produce milk in a way that we feel good about and milk that we feel good drinking and and to support people living this way, which has so much value in it. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on what you learn as a child growing up on a dairy farm, right? Oh, and gosh, somewhere yeah. my dad is rolling his eyes and saying, Beth never helped a day in her life <laughs> and still believes this, but it's still true. <laughs> I wasn't all that helpful. I will readily admit it, but I still internalized so many values. It, just as you were talking about the times when you're paying for somebody to come pick up your milk, uh, because you have to have that process continue uninterrupted. This wheel has to spin. There are so many lessons in that. I've learned so much about money from my mom and dad's um, faith about enduring those times. I mean, it's it's an important lifestyle in my view. And I think as a country, we really have to have a conversation about what we value and and how we are willing to express that value. Yeah. So I have a really, I understand the need for larger, larger operations. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. At what expense, at what sacrifice are we going to continue down this road of such high efficiencies that we've lost the art of farming? Um, my, my dad, we stopped milking in 2005. He said it was because I wouldn't help. And then I went and I married a dairy farmer. So he was real mad at my wedding. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, it's that thought that my husband knows if, if a cow doesn't feel well, like he can look around and be like, shoot, something's off. Something's mm-hmm. off. What they have to do on those larger dairies is – they have to put like a pedometer on them. Most cows on those that they have pedometers on them, which then codes the, you know, like sends an alert, a text alert that says, oh, the machine thinks that she's not, she's not doing very well. And so there's this lost art in the larger operations um, that, that it, that it kills me. Cause like I've been to, I've been to Fair Oaks. Have you ever taken the girls to Fair Oaks? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it's, so educational and it's so neat. And we buy fair life milk. Like it's my husband, love his heart. He's lactose intolerant, but um, so we buy fair life milk, but you go through there and it, it, it does. I mean, like there's no, there's no art left to it. There's no, to me, there's no American culture left in that, like the rural American culture. And it's, it's hard. It's disheartening because I don't ever want to say that there's not a place for those type of places. Because I mean, Fair Oaks is still a family farm. It's a fam. It's a 10 family farm. There are 10 farmers that still have to put, you know, food on their tables. So I don't want to discount them ever, but it's really, really hard when we can't even make a living. I mean, we can't, we can't do anything. Um, and so it's just, you know, something else that I I definitely wanted to relay is that the Southeast is a deficit market. We consume more dairy in the Southeast than we can produce. 
So why are dairies in the Southeast going out of business? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the answer is the dairies in the North are shipping their milk down here. Kroger's plant, 16 tanker loads go in there every single day. 14 of those come from Northern Indiana. But yet I can't, I'm just trying to make it work. Like, I feel like it should be more efficient for me to send my milk 40 minutes down the road to Winchester than it would be to basically ship milk down here from Chicago. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. You know, Sarah and I were having a conversation while we were traveling about lots of things. And, and one of them was efficiency in human resources, because I have this very deep sense of conviction that there's a sweet spot in a business. If you have way too many people, it really hurts the business because inevitably people don't feel useful. They don't feel purposeful. Those who are very industrious are very upset with their colleagues who are not very industrious. You really need to be right-sized for the number of people working in a business, right? But you should not be so lean that only one person can do any particular task. Because then you burden people to the point of burnout if someone wins the lottery, gets another job, makes a life change, whatever. You're struggling. And and what Sarah said in response to that that I thought was so genius, she was like, efficiency is not a value. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that is so right. Efficiency is not a value. There isn't something... Um, moral or ethical about being efficient. Efficiency is just a, a measurement, right? And it should be happening on a range. But our goals in business or in life shouldn't be, let's make everything as efficient as possible. And I think that's the question that you're asking. Like, first of all, how are you judging efficiency? There's some subjectivity in that. And secondly... Yeah. Why are we valuing efficiency over supplying a local market with milk raised locally? Yeah. So our biggest thing is, and, and I've talked to um, several dairy farmers from even up in Wisconsin and talking about these low milk prices and oversupply. And I mean, the dairy industry has done this to itself completely. I mean, we are our own worst enemy. We have been told by environmental activists that we need to decrease our carbon footprint. We need to decrease our environmental impact. So we need to use less water. We need to use less land. So we thought that, you know, we were doing good for for everyone because we were making sure cows produce more milk today. They They produce double the amount of milk that they did in the 1970s and the 1960s, which means we are using less water per cow. They are producing less waste. They are, you know, there's not as big of a carbon footprint. But then that means that technically, if I was milking 75 cows, then I should be milking 35 cows right now. Well, that hasn't been the case. The demand has not increased with us. Yeah. So... In fact, um, dairy consumption is up, but fluid milk consumption is down. People don't drink as much milk because they're drinking more water, which props to you, like props to everybody. I drink my water every day, <laughs> but, and dairy's up like more ice cream, more cheese. cheese ever, yeah. Yes. yes. But it's not increasing as fast as our efficiency. And so with that, people are having to get out of the business but we're not sending those cows to the stockyards or, or, you know, sending them to the slaughterhouse. What we're ending up doing is we're selling them to make another herd two times, you know, bigger. And it's not helping. Um, 
So on one hand, we've done this to ourselves. And then on the other hand, it's like, but we were just doing what we thought was right. And what we had been told was right for our environment and our communities. Yeah, it seems to me that that this is a situation where there aren't really heroes or villains. There aren't really things where you think, here's somebody who did something really wrong. It's just kind of the the conclusion of the trajectory of American consumption. Yeah, I was telling somebody that I was like, this is true capitalism. And what does, you know, like, what do we look at? You know, like, I, I like to consider myself a capitalist. But then again, I mean, it's one of those things that's like, at what cost? Um, because Walmart's doing what's best for Walmart to make sure that they're making more money. And if they squish out the little man, I mean, they've squished out a lot of other, you know, mom and pop stores, but it wasn't, I don't think they ever set out to say, we want to squish everything. I think they, they set out to say, we want to provide, um, a certain, not a service, but goods where there is an absence of those. That's like why all the, I don't know if, if in McLean County, this is happening, but like dollar general stores are going up everywhere. It's like, it's like the new Walmart (laughs) and it's like, you know, we have little local stores that are having to go out of business because of those. And the American people just have to decide at what cost do we get the lowest, the cheapest food supply, the, you know, um, the lowest priced goods. I mean, we by far have the cheapest food supply in the world. We only use 10 to 20% of our income on food. Whereas even like the UK and other Developed countries use 40% of their income on food. We are lucky. We have a whole lot of disposable income. It's such an important point, and I'm glad that you frame it up that way because I think of myself as a capitalist, too. I don't think that that means that we live in a – that we must necessarily live in an unprincipled capitalism, I don't think that capitalism requires us to say that the logical extension and the inevitable extension and the conclusion over which we have no control whatsoever is the constant acquisition of more by all people. And and that, to me, gets to the crux of what you're saying. Like, we can, in a capitalist society, decide that we're willing to pay more for our milk in order to preserve family dairy farms. And we can make that decision about a whole lot of other things. Right. Is there anything I've not asked you about that you want to be sure you say today? But no, I think, I think that was, I think that was it. I, I kind of, I wanted to reiterate like the cost of breaking even. And then, um, because a lot of people don't understand that they think another good, I guess, um, thought is to think of it this way. When you, we recognize that when we go to the grocery store and there's 78 cent milk per gallon, we could pour that into our milk tank. We could buy everything that they have, pour that into our milk tank and make money, Hmm. which is shocking, which I, I was thinking about that the other day. And I was like, we could literally go to Kroger and Walmart and take all the milk off their shelves at 78 cents a gallon. At, at even like a dollar, a dollar fifty a gallon, and make money because they're selling it 
so much as lower a, than yeah. your cost of producing it. Right. As a loss leader. Yeah. That we can't compete with as a local, as a local dairy. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Carolyn. And I wish you and your family the best as you navigate this real crisis. I can't imagine what it would feel like to know that in 28 days, you might have to start dumping your milk and figuring out what you're going to do with these cows. And I sure hope that something comes through where you guys can continue this this third generation into the next generation and, and keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me. And definitely thank you all for highlighting this crisis that goes on that we, you know, we're a very proud group of people that doesn't necessarily like to to holler or toot our own horn or, or whatever. And it's it's nice to have people recognize that this is an issue and, and it could impact a lot besides just our family dairy. And your family dairy matters too. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just part of the larger story, but your story is important too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Carolyn for joining me. I really hope that there is a solution for Carolyn and for the many families going through what her family is. And I'm really curious to hear everyone's thoughts about this discussion and kind of what the price of milk is worth to us and how we envision our economy going forward. We always take a second at the end of the show to talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Sarah, what are you thinking about? My kitchen is done, y'all. For regular listeners who've been following along with my renovation, there's been pics on Patreon. Um, I will be posting the final shot as soon as there's just a few final touches. But everything in, the appliances are in, the countertop, the floor, and I love it so much, you guys. Like, I love it so much. I'm glad that you love it. It's a long oh. process if you don't love it at the end. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's been it's been a long process. There's been lots of hiccups. It was supposed to take two weeks. It took a month. That's okay. Um, but we are so happy with the final result. Even my husband, who does not like to spend money, was like, this was the right call. This kitchen is much more functional. Um, and we're so, so happy with the results. And it's just so nice to like, when you've designed it for the way you move around a kitchen, I just feel like the most efficient person ever, which hits all, pushes all my buttons. I love efficiency. So we are just absolutely loving the new kitchen. Well, I have been loving West Cork, which is an Audible original series, and I wanted to mention it to everybody. Chad and I have been listening to it together. I tweeted about how love is that we share the AirPods because in the car when we're on long trips, we have the girls on their iPads and we each take an AirPod and listen to West Cork together. We finished it this morning on a walk that lasted a little over three miles that helped us finish it up. It's so interesting. It's about the murder of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier, who was a French woman visiting her vacation home in West Cork, Ireland in the late 90s. And she was murdered while she was there. And to this day, we really don't know what happened. There is an individual in Ireland named Ian Bailey who, who was just kind of an outsider in West Cork, which is a really insular community. He was British. He was loud and obnoxious and a poet, and he would, like, stand in bars reciting his poetry and had kind of a, a checkered past. And so the community and the guards, Ireland's police force, believe that he killed Sophie I don't know. I've listened to hours and hours of this now, and I have no idea whether he did or he didn't. But it is a fascinating tale. If you liked Serial, you'll love this. And it's just it's even more mysterious, I think, because it's set in this tiny place in Ireland that's full of mystery. And the 
the people who produced it did a spectacular job. There is so much texture to the sound. They researched this for three years, talked to the whole community. Um, And it's also, it kind of reminds me of Alias Grace, the Margaret Atwood novel that I love, because there's a lot in it about how memory morphs over time. And there are all these different factors that influence every single person in the story and kind of what they're motivated by and what their version of the story becomes as it unfolds. So highly recommend West Cork. Can I just take a time out? You and Chad both don't have AirPods. I find this shocking. We both have AirPods, but we want to listen together. Oh, I see. And it would be hard. You could sync it probably pretty close, but I see what you're saying. Okay. I was like, I'm like, there's no way both of you don't have AirPods. You are very dedicated to the Apple universe. Okay, that's good to know. We are totally Apple devotees here, but we... But it's kind of great to, like, share AirPods and do a story together. I don't know. We've listened to books together in the car before, but it's gotten more complicated now that the girls have such strong audio preferences. So this has become our new thing. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We have another podcast called The Nuanced Life, where we carry on conversations sort of that start in politics often, but lend to deeper focus on marriage and kids and happiness and health. And this week, we are going to continue a conversation that started in the Me Too space about the ways we glamorize workaholism and particular certain industries and how that can contribute to sort of Me Too problems. Then again, we will be back on Friday with another episode of Pantsuit Politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pidoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.